Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. G'day and welcome to The Call, 10 stocks picked by you two experts. One hour, it is Tuesday, the 17th of October. I'm Andrew Gagan. Great to have you with us. Our experts on the show today, Mark Morland from Team Invest and Owen Raskovitz from Rask Australia. Welcome to both of you guys. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. Um, Owen, let me start with you. Interesting times, of course. Uh, Geopolitical events, uh, that risk is rising. Oil prices rising, prospect that inflation could mm-hmm. take off again. Uh, the rates as a response, where they're likely to go from here. What do you, um, I mean, is the macro picture influencing your investment decisions? Uh, it certainly does because we build core portfolios. So in that we use a lot of fixed income products. And so the debate that we've had this year has been predominantly around how much fixed rates do we want in a portfolio versus a floating rate, and we're moving away from floating rate towards fixed. So that's, I would say that's probably the biggest call we'll make this year for our portfolios. Uh, but in terms of companies and bottom-up stock picking, it doesn't have as much of an impact. Obviously, it affects things like discount rates and consumer confidence and business confidence. But overall, we're bottom-up investors when it comes to companies. And I think we'll see that on display today with some of the companies we talk about. All right. Mark, what's your view? I mean, I know you're pretty much bottom-up anyway, but um, given what's going on at a macro level, I guess, geopolitical concerns are rising at this point. What is your thoughts, particularly where the equity market is travelling at the moment? I think, well, from a geopolitical point of view, it's, it's, uh, it's obviously very uh, concerning with, what, with what's going on militarily and so on, but it's very difficult to uh, apply that to your investing decisions when we're looking at Australian companies. I mean, you can, you know, there's some thematic type investors out there and they might say, well, defence stocks in the US like Lockheed Martin and companies like that are probably looking good. And you could say other companies are potentially at risk like maybe Israeli tech sector and so on. But for us in Australia and mainly investing in the US, there's really not much we can do about it. So we're still focused on value. And uh, obviously what we try and look at is going forward, the companies we're looking at investing in, can they cope with unforeseen circumstances? So let's assume we have further expansion and problems in these areas. Is that likely, we see how that would affect them negatively. You know, and if, for instance, like a company like ResMed or something like that, you, I would say it's not going to make any difference. It has, they have other challenges, but not geopolitical. Yep. Well, we've got a number of stocks like that. In fact, uh, mm-hmm. let me give you a preview of the, the five stocks we're going to be taking a look at in the first half hour. WiseTech Global. Fisher and Paykel, Healthcare, Sonic Healthcare, High Tech Group, and Levisa. Our stock of the day is Rio Tinto. It's out with a production update. It's reporting a marginal 1.2% rise in third quarter iron ore shipments as the company ramps up production at its uh, Good Eye Dairy Mine. Rio shipping close to 84 million tonnes of iron ore from its Pilbara operations in the three months to the end of September, compared with close to 83 million a year earlier. Mine copper production, 169,000 tonnes in the quarter, 5% higher than a year earlier. 
And Rio, which makes 70% of its profits through its iron ore division, saw prices of the commodity improve as top consumer China stepped up its stimulus efforts. However, the company does see China's recovery as uneven. It's also trimmed its Canada production outlook. Morningstar lifting its fair value estimate on Rio shares to $111 from $107 and on the back of high near-term underlying commodity prices. So let's get a view of our experts. Uh, Mark, Rio Tino, um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and, and I guess, in fact, it's uh, it's up around 2.5% today off the back of that report. Um, I would, I'd be avoiding Rio. I think... Um, the, one of the problems with these companies, and BHP is very much in a similar position, they are very, very dependent, as you just mentioned, on the commodity prices. And we really don't know uh, where that's going. In, and there's plenty of potential headwinds. I'm not saying the, the, that iron ore prices will come off, but it's very hard to be confident of saying, am I, am I virtually certain that earnings per share growth is going to be higher in, on a five-year horizon, which is how we look at it at Team Invest. Uh, it's also, at the moment, at the top of its PE range. It's currently on 13.2% trailing which is the top of the red. We like to buy uh, companies, assuming they pass all our uh, filters, uh, in the bottom quartile. And for Rio to be in the bottom quartile, it has to be sub nine. So I think it's pretty expensive at the moment. Now, one of the reasons that's happened is that their earnings have dropped off fairly heavily over the, over the uh, well, last, since 22, 22 and trailing 12 months. It's down, they're down nearly 50% of what they were when they peaked in 21. So if you, if you look at it and say, well, uh, the earnings have come off, but the, PE, the price hasn't come off much, the PE goes up. It's a, it's a direct uh, consequence. So uh, for me, it's not predictable enough to be investable. Is that, how does that compare then with the other majors such as BHP and Fortescue in the iron ore space? Uh, well, BHP, they all have their pros and cons. Mm. I mean, if you, if you look at them at the moment, BHP, I think, is better value. It's also paying a higher dividend. And its stability is a bit better, although it's sort of tracking Rio pretty well. And both of them are very, very um, uh, affected by the iron ore price, obviously. So, but BHP at the moment, if I just have a, just call that up quickly as a comparison, uh, BHP is on is showing 11.7% on a margin of safety return, whereas Rio is about eight, and BHP is on 11.9p. So it's not it's cheaper, but not a lot cheaper. But its earnings growth is a lot higher. So if you look at if you look at their comparative performance. BHP's average earnings growth over the last six years has been 33% a year, whereas Rio's has uh, been a lot lower. I'll just see what it was. I can't remember off the top of my head. Rio's has been um, 12. So BHP's had significantly better earnings growth as well. So I, if, mm. if you make, if we were going to choose, I would go that, that yeah. way. Uh, Fortescue, for me, it's not a company. Well, by the way, we don't, we don't invest in any of these. So yeah. uh, personally, uh, Fortescue, their foray into green hydrogen and so on, I think it's a bit of a, um, a furphy. And I, and I get nervous when CEOs start getting evangelical. <laughs> well, that's the nature of Tricky Forest, isn't it? That's the way that's right. he plays. That's right. Um, so, Mark... Remember, remember, uh, remember, 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 remember Hamish Douglas. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Well, it hasn't been pretty, has it? Um, okay, so you're avoiding it, Team Invest. If you are an investor who holds it, would, would you stay there? Uh, it's... It, it's an opportunity cost issue. So right. depending on what your cost base is and whether you've got to pay tax, the dividend's not particularly high at the moment. I think there's better things to invest in. Okay. But um, So I couldn't say you should sell it. It's, yeah. not, it's not going to go broke or anything. Okay. Owen, what's your view? Uh, I'd probably have a slightly more, I guess, optimistic look at the actual fundamentals of the business. So I fully agree that 
it's very hard to predict commodity prices. I don't think anyone knows for certain. But what I would say is that businesses like BHP, Rio Tinto, to extent Fortescue, Barley, these types of businesses have reached efficient scale. And so they have the lowest cost production in the world across most commodities in which they operate. And they've exited most that they didn't have that. And so that does reinforce their competitive advantage, if that's what you're looking for, allowing them to have super normal profits when commodity prices are high, but then also insulates them on the downside when things go wrong. And so they are able to gobble up the weaker competitors that might be in um, you know, EPC or in construction phase of mines and have really valuable assets. So there is a self-fulfilling, uh, I guess, prophecy here that higher prices are good for profits, lower prices are also good for widening the moat. Uh, that, all that said, we don't invest in businesses like this. Uh, simply because we find them too capital intensive. The revenue is uh, somewhat unpredictable. And so we have a rule that basically we look at any investment through a lens of something that we call best expression. So the best expression principle is that before you make any investment to look at it, to sit back, to distance yourself from your research and to say, is this the best possible use of my money? And you get a reasonably valued, fully frank dividend yield from Rio Tinto. Or you could just go and buy a diversified ETF that probably has similar predictability, probably more predictability on the dividend and similar type of growth prospects. So we would take that bet over Rio or BHP. Um, and that's what we do. Yep. So right. if I did, so just to give you an exact answer, if I wasn't sitting on a big taxable gain here, I would sell and I would move into an ETF. If I was sitting on a, uh, a gain that would be crystallized, I'd be very mindful of that. And I'd probably just be happy to hold. Okay. All right. Okay, that is the view of Rio, our stock of the day. Let's get into the ones as picked by you. The first one in the tech space, it is WiseTech Global, the software solutions uh, to the logistics industry. Um, it's come off quite significantly just over the past couple of months, down around, well, more than 25%. Uh, that's after the company uh, provided uh, lower than expected underlying earnings guidance for fiscal 24. All right, Owen, let's get into WiseTech. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, we have one of the highest quality software companies in Australia here. Um, some might even argue potentially even the world um, with WiseTech. Uh, it's got 99% retention. I don't think you get that in many businesses. Even in software, you'd have to look at the likes of SAP overseas or any of those big ERP businesses. So in terms of the actual unit economics of the business, it's actually wonderful. Um, there was a cloud hanging over WiseTech a couple of years ago. A few uh, short attacks came out against it, effectively questioning the, the accounting that goes on underneath. And effectively, because WiseTech has made many acquisitions over many years, uh, what has effectively happened is it's rolled up these software businesses that at first, when they buy them, they run them in parallel with their existing technology. And it's, they do it for a few different reasons. One is geographical expansion. The other one is technical expertise. Because they're providing uh, software that goes through customs, they need to have specialist um, endpoints for that. So I don't think there's anything wrong with their acquisitions, but it does cloud the accounting underneath the surface. Uh, and that's where it's probably right that people would have hesitations. But I think for the most part, you have an extremely aligned founder um, who owns, top of my head, something like 40% of the business. Um, you don't get that very often. You don't get 99% retention very often. You don't get wonderfully wide gross margins very often. But if, these are no secret. Like Everyone can look at the public filings on this. And so what I would say is that you pay an extremely high multiple. I remember coming on the call maybe a couple of years ago at $20 saying how expensive it was. <coughs> it's now 60 yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, um, I think 
as a growth focused investor who'd want some exposure to WiseTech, but it's not an all or nothing. I'd say it's a, a very tentative buy, but it, you just have to acknowledge that you're over, probably overpaying and you just hope for a better price in the future. All right, not a convincing buy, but uh, nonetheless, um, one to watch certainly in that regard. Mark, your thoughts? Uh, yes, I, I sort of concur with 99% of what Owen said, actually. Uh, we, we actually really like uh, WiseTech. I think it's an excellent business for the reasons he's already mentioned. Um, there's a couple other aspects to it as well. They, they have some major contracts with some of the leading companies in the world in logistics and so on. And then what they have is those companies are implementing one country at a time. So if you actually look at their forward earnings growth, because one of the things we look at at Team Invest is how confident are we that the earnings can grow and at what rate over the next five years, which is our not our investment horizon, but our analysis horizon. And then we roll that five years going forward. And we're very confident that uh, they can maintain their growth rate, which currently is running at um, uh, about 35% a year. Now, 35% EPS growth is enormous and very, very difficult to maintain for many years because you end up owning the market, particularly if you're an Australian-only company, which they're not. They're uh, definitely uh, international. So we're very confident about the company. The, the, whole, the only significant problem with it is the uh, PE ratio, which is currently 95 times. Now, is 95 times too high for 35% growth? I would say yes. Uh, it's in the middle of their range. So even though it's come off a fair bit, it, it was up higher than that before. It's dead, dead smack in the middle of its average between its low and high on a, on a yearly basis. So it needs to be below 80 uh, to get into what we call the green, which is the bottom quartile. Um, quite a lot of our Team Invest members actually own it, and they've done very, very well. I don't personally own it, but I would like to. There's a very big difference in our calculations on likely return and margin of safety. And the reason the margin of safety is discounted much more with wise tech than a lot of other quality companies is that super high PE, and it's very sensitive to any bad news. So as you said, they come out with a, a report of any challenges or problems, it's likely to get, a, get hit hard. So that's disappointing. I wish it was at a PE of about 40, um, then, I'd, then I'd be an eager buyer. So if you look at it and say, uh, what price would you pay? Um, we, I would say, based on our models, uh, it would be about, um, uh, oops, sorry, where are we? Uh, get the right page up, would it be helpful? Um, it's currently 62. Uh, our, our, we're showing 47 as, the, mm. as an ideal buy price. Now, whether you can get it for 47, if we have a market route um, caused by whatever's happening uh, out in the market, it's quite, quite possible. That, that could happen. Yeah. And if you look at the if you look at the uh, history of the the volatility volatility of their PE and price range, uh, they were down to uh, thirty seven dollars in uh, twenty three this year. So the last in the last twelve months, trailing twelve months been forty eight so low, which is what we're talking about. And in nine in two oh two three it was thirty seven and twenty nine in twenty two. So and the highs were eighty eight. So it's it's very very it has a really very pronounced range every year. So I would. I would suggest that anybody who wants to buy it, just be patient, put an order in preferably because it's very hard to catch these things because they often drop. When they drop, they tend to bounce back pretty quickly as well. So if you have an order in, let's say something like 48, I think um, it would be a buy. All right. If we have a market route, be careful of what you wish for. Um, all right. Well, that's the view on Wise Tech Global. All right. Now let's get into a couple of uh, healthcare stocks. The first one being... Fisher and Pikel Healthcare, picked by Scott. He's 
saying, uh, is it a good alternative to ResMed in light of discussions around these obesity drugs, particularly given that Fisher & Paykel is around 70% weighted to hospital devices versus ResMed's around 70% consumer-related sleep apnea treatments? Uh, does the Fisher & Paykel pullback represent a buying opportunity for long-term or can you hold both in your portfolio? Mark, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, it's interesting because historically, if you look at the last few years, Fisher & Paykel has typically been at half the PE ratio of ResMed, and ResMed has always literally been double. And there's quite a lot of similarities with the business. And as you said, the difference is that uh, ResMed is 70% consumer, 30% hospital, and Fisher & Paykel is the other way around. Uh, our view of these, sleep, the, uh, these new drugs that are going to cause weight loss is I think it's been way oversold. So I wouldn't be buying Fisher & Paykel instead of ResMed for that reason. But at the moment, ResMed's on a PE of 24 and Fisher & Paykel was on uh, 47, I think, or 48. So it's, 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 it's effectively like half, you're paying half for ResMed is what you're paying for Fisher & Paykel at the moment. So I think it's a black and white, I'd buy ResMed. But Fisher & Paykel is a quality company, by the way, and we do like it. And a lot of members are shareholders. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just relative value between the two at the moment. Yep. It's been the other way for so long that uh, I've finally been able to buy ResMed. Yep. Uh, well, you're not alone in your thoughts on ResMed, uh, given where it's gone and has continued to fall. Um, yeah. Owen, do you agree? Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I think ResMed's a wonderfully high-quality business, and that's demonstrated over many years of growth, sustainable growth. And on the forward basis, it's it, it looks like there's no reason to doubt it, to be honest. I mean, I know we were talking about Zempic and these types of things in the market as a I guess a substitute for other forms of weight loss. Um, I think that's overblown. I think that um, both of these businesses are really compelling, particularly with the Philips recall not too long ago. Um, that's basically one of the big three uh, pulling back in a meaningful way. And so you have uh, an opportunity to buy two really good businesses, I would say, both Fisher and Paykel and ResMed, at a time when one of their key competitors is um, still reeling a bit. And the interesting thing about these two businesses is one is predominantly at home, being ResMed, and one is in the hospital, as Scott rightly pointed out. And so in terms of cannibalization, the market opportunity for both of these businesses is substantial, even if they have a minor amount of overlap. And so in this instance, I think it would be a case of you can take both and you can watch that thesis play out over time. Um, I, I think that's a, a really valid strategy in high growth markets where you don't know for certain who will be the winner, or even if indeed there will be one winner, because it, I doubt it will be a winner-takes-all market across both segments. So I think you could own both in a portfolio quite well. All right. Um, interesting take then. So uh, that's looking at, well, I guess both Fisher & Paykel and ResMed, particularly given their exposure in that sleep treatment space. All right, let's stay in healthcare, but... Uh, a different perspective, just looking at pathology and diagnostic imaging and the like. I'm talking Sonic Healthcare here. Um, and just taking a look at its share price, it picked um, at about, uh, where was it? Uh, $46 odd, um, the beginning of 2022. It's now down to about $30. Uh, Owen, seeing with Sonic, at the moment, I guess particularly as far as its growth potential, because it suffered over COVID, has come back. But what are you seeing going forward? 
Yeah, well, these businesses uh, have suffered many what you might call moat attacks. It's the kind of the colloquial name for it now. But uh, effectively, they've been challenged many times. Uh, we saw COVID as an issue there. But also before that, when uh, got various governments have wanted to basically step in and say, well, hey, there's too much testing going on. It seems to be a bit of a rot. Uh, but then the company and the industry basically comes out and says, well, more testing is actually a preventative thing. I know myself, I've been for ultrasounds, blood tests, all these types of things recently. And uh, Sonic is a leader in all types of testing in Australia and in parts overseas. It's the third biggest player in the US. Um, to get there, it's had it pursued a really interesting model around acquisitions, as well as some modest organic growth. The thing with Sonic is that you could probably expect it to grow about mid single digits in terms of its top line. And that will come through a combination of um, modest price increases, but also through volume based increases. And one of the key differences with Sonic and its competitors is that its ability to use its hub and spoke model to have many different effectively collection centers for one laboratory. And that's enabled it to scale very quickly in an efficient way from a capital allocation perspective. <clears throat> but ultimately what you end up with, in my opinion, is you end up with a business that's growing modestly, that pays you know, recent, uh, decent dividends, um, and you end up with a business that's quite competitively advantaged, but I think it's growth constrained. Uh, at this point in the, the, the business's, I guess, cycle, it's at a mature stage, I would say it's probably a hold. Uh, that's if I held shares, I would keep holding. I wouldn't buy more shares today because if we go back to the best expression principle, I think there's better opportunities for new money. Um, you could probably get a little bit more growth if you're taking individual stock risk and you could probably get more consistent dividends. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Because I was talking about the effect of COVID, of course, it benefited with testing there. It was subsequently, obviously, yeah. as we Rolled all off. stopped heading off in that direction to get tested. Mark? What are your thoughts then? Um, yeah, it's, it, we have looked at it in the past, and uh, one of the Sonic board members was a member of ours for quite a few years um, as well. And it's, it, we, we've always described it as a mediocre business. Uh, all the things that Owen said were true, and they, they, are, they have a strong market position, but they haven't been able to convert that into decent profits. And if you look at the, their earnings from 2014 up until 2020, so just from to, start, to the start of COVID, they went from $0.96 cents per share per year to $1.10 which is virtually no growth at all. It would be barely, if, if it kept up with inflation, would be questionable. And going forward, then it jumped significantly. So earning, earnings jumped up to a peak of uh, $3 uh, during, because of the amount of testing they did during COVID. So they boomed through COVID, but then now it's dropping off very rapidly and heading back towards the same trend line they had pre-COVID. So now the problem with that is the share price hasn't come off as much as their growth has dropped. So the P's in the, is in uh, over 20 and high in the red. So you're paying 20 times earnings for a company that I would argue is barely keeping up with inflation uh, going forward. And even if, if Owen's correct and their growth is mid-single digits, which is probably true, then that's what the inflation rate is, which means you're not even getting a return. So I wouldn't touch it, quite frankly. I think it's been a very mediocre company and it's been consistently mediocre. All right. Okay. And better use of the funds elsewhere. So if I had it, yeah. I'd sell it. Well, that's what yeah. Owen was referring to as well. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to High Tech Group. Uh, this is uh, recruitment of ICT professionals, supply contracting services, public and private sectors. Um, and I think it's for its eighth or ninth consecutive year, double-digit revenue growth there. Uh, it's actually one I've never covered here on the call. So, Mark, what's uh, have you looked at this one closely? 
No, and uh, it's very interesting, actually, because it looks great. Uh, why we've never looked at it, I looked at the numbers and, and said, this looks terrific. Why haven't we ever seen it? And the reason is the market cap is um, 79 million, mm. and we sort of cut off at 100. <laughs> so uh, it's below our minimum. And the reason we don't go smaller than that is because our members have got several billion dollars between them to invest. And if it's too small, then you can't buy any shares. So, so it becomes a bit pointless. Anyway, having said that, its return on equity uh, is uh, currently running at 71%. So this is obviously a very capital-light business. And return on capital is 55%, which is fantastic. A little bit of debt, not much. Um, actually, market cap's 81 million as of yesterday. And we're showing it returning. It's on, it's on a 14 PE. And their EPS growth rates average 12.3, but with 97% stability. So sales have been growing at 21% a year uh, for 94% stability. These are really good numbers. Uh, EPS, I'd like to be higher than that, but still, what we want is predictability. So if I'm confident that the EPS can grow at 12.3, which is what it's been doing, or say 12, over the next five years, I'm going to get a return of about 21% a year, assuming the PE, terminal PE is still 14, which is, which is quite low for, for, uh, for that, that earning rate. So there's not a lot of uh, PE compression risk like we have with Wise Tech, for instance. You don't have that happening. So it passes all our filters. It's, all, it's a sea of green. Um, so I would, I would say, apart from potentially any liquidity concerns, which I don't know, you know, what the trading volumes are and so on, it's paying a 5.2% yield, which I, I assume is frank, but I, I'd have to look it up. Um, I'd say it's a buy. All right. Okay. High tech group. I win. Yeah, it's it's not often that I come on the show and there's a technology company that I haven't heard of. Mm. It's uh, even rare again that it seems to be so high quality on first scan. And then for all three of us to say we haven't covered it before, I think is even rarer again. So um, I think this is a demonstration of a business that has grown consistently thanks to its basically its family uh, ties. And so the business uh, has still got family involvement. And when we brought up the share price before, you could see on the screen, it kind of looked a bit flat, like a, something you might see in a hospital. Um, and that's because insiders own a substantial amount of the business still. Mm. And that obviously impacts liquidity even further for the team invest community trying to invest in it. That would be even harder again. So um, it ticks all the right boxes for me. It's, uh, it's a business that seems to be playing into a a structural trend, which is e-commerce, uh, cybersecurity, these types of things. It does it in a way that's profitable. Um, so I think it was about 70 odd million dollars of revenue with profits in the millions as well. So you're getting good margins as it grows. You've got alignment. Um, you get a dividend as well. So I think f for any small cap investors and micro cap investors watching now, I think this is one that should definitely be on your watch list. And um, mm -hmm. If, if the three of us haven't spoken about it much, it's probably a good sign to you to go and pursue it. I would say, uh, just because I'm so new to it, I'd say hold, but this is the type of business that I would like to own in a very, it was a very small part of my portfolio for a very long time. Yeah, interesting. All right. Uh, yeah, great to get a stock that we rarely cover and uh, obviously mm. some positive analysis right there. All right, let's round out the first half hour with a LaVisa. It is the uh, retailer of fashion, jewellery and accessories, stores. Uh, well, it's expanded its footprint, Australia, New Zealand, Asia, Europe, also South Africa. I guess I could call it a market darling, or at least it was. Uh, seems as though perhaps the market has fallen out of love with it to a degree uh, just over the past few months. In fact, uh, I guess there are issues, particularly with uh, what's going on in the consumer discretionary sector with hit by rising wages, uh, softening demand and the like. Owen? 
how are you viewing LaVisa? I think LaVisa is a wonderful business. I think there aren't many businesses that I can go on uh, television or speak to people and it's so polarizing, uh, particularly for the ladies in the room or people that are younger, they are familiar with the brand, they go to the Westfield, they pick up their really cheap jewelry, maybe three pieces for under $10 and you think to yourself, how can a business that operates in Westfield and offers something that is so low priced, how can that have a competitive advantage? And that's kind of the polarization of this company. And I think you look at Brett Blundy, who basically backs the company, uh, Fel Shear, who recently departed, um, but Victor Herrera, who's the new CEO in place, who has tremendous experience at Zara. They obviously all see something in this business and the share price over the long term reflects that. And it's the ability to go to market ex- extremely quickly that sets LaVisa apart. So even though it's selling very um, low price jewelry, it's very high margin. And if you notice something about a LaVisa store when you go past, if you go into the shopping center and you see one, what you'll notice about them is that they're always off. They're always in the little weird nook and cranny in the, the Westfield, because this is the part of the, the shopping center that is the cheapest. But LaVisa can store all of its inventory basically within arm's reach of the, the cashier. So it's a tiny little store format, which makes rent cheaper, which means they can have more throughput of uh, inventory and they can charge a, a reasonable price for a product that costs next to nothing to make. And so this business has grown really well. It's expanding overseas. Um, there are instances overseas of companies doing this well, but there are probably more instances of companies doing it poorly. So it, while it's not a binary outcome from here, I think the upside is two or 3,000 stores. And I think the downside is where it is today. So I think there's asymmetry here for investors who want to take a core and a satellite approach to put this in their satellite. Um, I guess some of the, the risk factors are overseas expansion acquisitions gone wrong, but also any type of insider wanting to move out. So I'd say it's a buy. Um, and obviously it's on the riskier end because it's a retailer and all those types of usual uh, things that I should couch it in. But that's, um, that's, I think it's a wonderful business. Yep. Well, I can't see the attraction, but my three daughters can yep. for obvious reasons. <laughs> hey, um, Mark, now Steve actually brought this one to us. Uh, he's pointing out that you and Howard Coleman were saying that Team Invest are doing some work on it. Uh, and yep. he's wondering how that went, whether you're thinking it's a buy currently given the share price has pulled back. What are your thoughts? Okay, no, we, we have done some work on it and uh, it's some mixed, mixed feelings about it, but <clears throat> overall it's passed our, um, our scrutiny. The things we like about it are that um, they're operating in 30 countries if you have a look at the history, they've actually pulled out of some countries, so they're quite flexible in how they manage their where they're targeting. And, and some countries have been flat, some have gone down a little bit, and they're expanding very quickly in the US at the moment, in the Middle East. So um, we've also got Brett Blundy, as Owen mentioned, and he's got 48 million, 43 million shares, which would be roughly 800 million uh, in the company, and Brett Blundy to us is a, a bit of, is a superstar, and he's made all his money in Australia out of retail. So he is absolutely a billionaire uh, several times over from retail, and he's he's the largest shareholder. So um, that gives me a lot of confidence because I have a lot of confidence in him. So I'm going to say it's a buy. It's currently on 29 PE, which for retail that's high, and their earnings growth is only showing seven point. Uh, tw- so 12.7 average over the last six years, but they did they took a big hit in COVID because they're mainly retail, as in physical locations. So if you look at the trend before that, uh, now look at their earnings going back to 2015. Their earnings were 16 cents a share, and just before and now they're sorry 62 cents a share. 
So 16 to 62 in eight years is very good growth. And it's a lot better than 12 if you take the COVID impact out. And I think if you look at their sales now and their earnings, they're back on a slightly increased trajectory to what they were pre-COVID. So all this talk about retail suffering and being discounted is all bull. And it hasn't happened. And the retailers are all performing, the good retailers, I'm saying, not all of them, are performing very, very well. And they're, they're all relatively cheap. But I think at 29, considering the growth opportunity they've got on an international basis and the management and their past performance, I'd say it's a buy. All right. That is a double buy. And that means the investment committee is going to consider it. All right, so let's summarise where we've been for the first half of the show. It began with our stock of the day. Uh, it's Rio Tino off the back of its production update. Um, Mark's saying, look, Team Invest pretty much avoids these stocks anyway, so it isn't a void. It's also talking about the top of its PE range at the moment, uh, too capital intensive. Uh, that's also the point of Owen. Too hard to predict, obviously, given those uh, where those commodity prices are going. Uh, Owen tending to a hold, potentially a sell, depending on your position in terms of, I guess, uh, your tax position in regards to that. As of those stocks picked by you, we began with WiseTech Global, um, it's a buy from Owen, and uh, he's talking about strong investor retention there, uh, particularly the founder uh, who owns around, what, 40% mm. of the company. Uh, Mark calling it an excellent business. P.E. ratio, though, 95 times. Uh, he's got a watch to buy. He said he would like to buy it, but at a considerably lower price. That may mean the um, share market has to tank as a result. A uh, couple of... Uh, Healthcare stocks to consider, Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, the first one. Uh, and the question here was whether it's a good alternative to ResMed, given what's happened to ResMed and the rise of these weight loss drugs and how that's affected its business, given uh, its um, uh, concentration there, particularly with uh, sleep treatments. Um, Mark saying, uh, look, he wouldn't buy it. He would buy ResMed instead. It's fairly compelling value at the, at the moment. Uh, whereas Owen would buy both, uh, particularly also given that space, what's happened there with Philips, the competitor, which had a massive product recall, which was to the advantage of the others. Still in the healthcare space, Sonic Healthcare, this is in the pathology and diagnostic imaging space. Um, Owen pointing out growth of single digits, a competitive advantage there. He's got a hold on it. Uh, Mark, though, saying, look, he's calling it a mediocre business. Simply not interested. High Tech Group. This is interesting. Uh, none of us really have covered this before. Uh, perhaps, as Mark points out, because it's got a market cap of about 81 million, uh, 71% return on equity. So he's got a buy on it. And uh, Owen pointing out it is very tightly held. So that's something to watch. It's on his watch list to buy. So he's got a hold on it at this point. And uh, LaVisa, the uh, the fashion jewellery and accessory store there, uh, well, as I just mentioned, it is a double buy, both liking LaVisa at this point. All right. So let's uh, catch up with our own high conviction fund picked by our investment committee. The latest episode of that is live here to watch at osbiz.com. Checking in on the updates. Going into October, Avita Medical taken out. It's one distributed between Washington, eight salt pats, and Altium. One percent was taken out of each of Karoon, Promedicus, and Paladin Energy. Another one percent of cash was spent to add Camplify. Checking in on its performance, it is up about five point four percent on a cumulative return basis since its inception 
in March last year. So keep sending your requests in, keep the call switched on to see which stocks our committee we're looking at next. All right, next for this half hour, we're going to take a look at, we just mentioned Altium, Charter Hall, Long Whale Rigged, Monodelphus, Collins Foods, and Beam Communications. All right, so let's begin with Altium. Then in the software space provides electronic design software for engineers. Uh, FY24 guidance there was for a 22% increase year on year, uh, underpinned by substantial subscriber growth. Owen, what can you tell us about Altium? Uh, Well, Altium, I think, is, from when I run numbers recently, um, one of the three best-performing companies over the past 10 years on the ASX. And it's pretty easy to see why it creates software for designers to design um, printed circuit boards. So that's everything from what's inside these computers, from whatever you're watching this, from your phone, your TV. There's that little motherboard that goes in there. Uh, you can use Altium to design that. And Altium software is very sticky, but the, the key th- structural trend is still underway for the business, and that's a migration to the cloud. And we're probably 70% of the way through, maybe 80% of the way through that transition. And by going to the cloud, obviously, they have more flexibility to update the software to increase prices and for new users to adopt it. Thing to note about Altium is that it operates in an industry that is competitive, but I would say Altium software is the leading software. And the two, well, there's a few competitors, but two of them are Cadence Systems, uh, which is listed on the NASDAQ, and uh, Mentor Graphics, which is now owned by Siemens. Uh, So you can't really get a proper look at that anymore. But Altium as a whole, super high returns on invested capital, super high profit margins, dividends, lots of insider ownership, um, long-term owner-operator at the, ham- at the handles with uh, Aram. And so ultimately you end up with a business where the only question that you should probably have is valuation. I think it's a more reasonable valuation than WiseTech. I think if you could have got the opportunity to buy Altium <coughs> earlier this year, that would have been a steal. But now after a huge jump up in price, uh, Couple of, maybe a couple of months ago now. Um, I think it's closer to fair value, if not slightly overvalued based on discounted cash flow analysis. Um, all that said, I think for a small part of a portfolio, we recommended it many years ago, I'd still be happy to hold it. Okay, all right. So Mark, it is in our fantasy portfolio. Is that where it should be? Yes. Um, yeah, yes, so look, we, we've, we've covered out here for years, you know, a long time. So. Um, I have been a shareholder. I'm not anymore. Um, we had some management meetings which we didn't didn't go well um, from our perspective. And one of them was you see it in their earnings growth versus their sales growth, and their sales growth has been uh, rocketing ahead at a higher, significantly higher percentage, so at 13.5 percent per year versus 10 percent for earnings. So this is a software business. So what should happen? Is as you sell more, your actual net profit margin should increase because you've got efficiencies and you already sunk. You've got the sunk cost in the software as well uh, in your uh, what you're doing. So we want we'd like to see that going uh, up, but they're going the other way. And when we discussed it with management, they basically told us that they were much more focused on gaining market share, which was a massive turnoff for us. So uh, so we don't believe that they're optimizing the business anything like they could be. So it's still a quality business. I'm not criticizing it, and I think they are the market leader as well. I totally agree with uh, Owen. Uh, it's on a 56 PE though, which is at the top of a lot of the bottom of the black, which is the so it's about 52 percent of its range. So it's not cheap, and what that does is it gives you a return in in our range of 15 percent per year on default, 
down to 1.1 on a margin of safety, which is more heavily discounted. So there's there's suffering for a few few reasons in our calculations. So um, the other thing, if you compare it to WiseTech, yes, the PE is sort of nearly half, but WiseTech CPS growth rate is 35% a year versus 10 for um, for uh, Altium. So if you're going to use the comparison, the uh, I would argue WiseTech is actually better value. Yeah, just just to play devil's advocate here, so I would say it's a hold. Uh, it would need to be cheaper. I'd want to buy it with a ten percent return on a margin of safety, which for me to do that, I, I couldn't pay more than twenty seven dollars sixty two. All right, that's a double hold then for Altium. Yep. Let's get into a REIT, and the one we're going to take a look at it is the Charterhall Long Whale REITs. Uh, it's uh, picked by Guy. Uh, look, it is a real estate trust investing in assets, primarily uh, leased to corporate and government tenants. So I guess, you know, particularly the pressure REITs have been under, that's some saving grace there. However, you take a look at the share price, it's been under extreme pressure. Okay, Mark, um, give us a view then on Charter Hall. Uh, I would completely avoid it. I think I, I think the whole readjustment of cap rates and higher interest rates has not factored through yet. There, it has to a degree. And if you actually look at Charter Hall's um, sales growth, it's been 2.2% a year with 93% stability over the, over the last um, uh, six years. And so very flat. Now, that sales growth is actually revenue. But then if you look at the earnings, the earnings have been 16.3% and they've grown dramatically. And what, what that is, is the impact of revaluations. So it's one of the areas which we don't, one of the reasons we're very dubious about REITs uh, is because they typically have had a tailwind in the past where the properties get revalued and that, that all drops through to effectively profit, even though it's not a, a cash profit. Now, what's happened in 23 is they've been forced to take some um, write downs. So it goes the other way. So property values decrease. With the cap rate, it leverages down uh, a loss. So they've actually gone into a loss situation from 22, where they made a dollar eight per share, and now uh, last year it was down at negative five cents, and that's why the share price is uh, suffering as it should. I just think it's too early. I think we haven't seen this play out yet, and I think it's got quite a lot more room for these cap rate impacts on the valuations of REITs to further hit their uh, hit their values. So there will be a time where they're going to be cheap, but I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. Yep. Okay. Owen? Uh, this is a really interesting one because it's not something that we pay a lot of attention to. We don't have REITs in our core portfolios, for example. Um, but I think it's it's an interesting dichotomy what we're seeing between listed and unlisted funds. So on the, the, the unlisted side, obviously the frequency with which the fund managers have to report the, the asset values and um, like the unit prices isn't as frequent as you see in a, in a listed vehicle like this. And I think for the most part, what we're seeing is an opportunity to potentially take a serious look at some of these businesses. And as Mark said, we might be early, but at the same time, um, for a small part of a portfolio to slowly wade into something like this, I think now is an interesting time to look at it. I think you've got the backing of pretty consistent income in the form of about 20% simply being leased to governments. Um, and you've got a whole host of big corporates there, probably with the only blemish being Maya or something like this, which is more of a struggling department store. Um, 
at the end of the day, you buy REITs, I think, based on two things, which is the income that they produce. And if you're looking for a valuation yardstick, you do look, as Mark was alluding to, you look at things like the price to book ratio. Um, and it's the key, obviously in the price to book ratio, we're comparing share price to the value of the assets inside it. And we think the value of the assets inside it are worth less. But this is the lowest valuation I've ever seen for charter whole long while REIT. Mm-hmm. And so I would say the dichotomy is that the listed vehicles have already adjusted quite significantly for the valuation downgrades. Um, do I think we'll see more asset valuations falling off? Yes, absolutely. Do I think we're going to return to what it was pre-pandemic? No. But how much of that is already baked in? I would dare say that the majority of that is already baked in. And so for a very small position, I want to get very clear, a very small position, this could almost be a very contrarian speculative buy. Mm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, just Andrew, just to add to that too, yep. and that's, that's a good, good observation. I think the difference between the, the non-listed REITs, and we don't follow REITs either, by the way, so this is my observation, the, that the unlisted ones, because they haven't gone down as much, just tells you mm. that because the reporting of the listed ones is, is, the, the, is, is a leading indicator of what's going to happen mm. to the unlisted ones. So yeah. you could say that if you wanted to, if you, were, if you liked REITs, then you'd go into Charter Hall and sell what you've got as, uh, mm. if you can, if you can, yeah. of the uh, unlisted ones. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. All right, so that is our one and only REIT. Let's uh, move on to Monodelphus. It is an engineering company providing construction, maintenance uh, services, primarily to the resource and energy sectors. Uh, margins uh, disappointed. They, I think, came in about 5.8% down from 6.1% at its last uh, reporting. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Owen. It's uh, doing benefiting, certainly, from lithium at the moment with a number of mines and I maybe that applies to the gold miners as well there seems to be a lot of exploration at the moment um, so what's your view on Monodelphus? Well yeah you'd be right um, obviously a mining services business benefits from exploration but uh, a lot of maintenance goes through Monodelphus so maintenance contracts which don't always carry as high a margin because typically what we see in services businesses we talked at Rio and BHP at the top of the show um, typically we see them as quite cyclical well the, the mining services businesses tend to bounce up and down even harder again because they're almost, even though they may not have debt or an excessive amount of debt, they are leveraged in their operations. So during times of peak booms in commodities, what we see is a shortage of labor and of skills. So they charge whatever they want effectively. And then on the, the opposite side, we see them tank down the bottom because there's, an, there's a glut of supply of labor and these types of things. And it would be fair to say we're probably somewhere in between that. And the share price over time, you can see it there, reflects that. Um, for the most part, uh, we avoid these types of businesses simply because they're highly capital intensive for the most part. Um, this one doesn't, uh, it's not as much because I think there's a bit of accounting going on um, around leasing and these types of things. But uh, for the most part, I think it's you know it's a well-run business. It's been around for a long time. People only need to go back to 2013, 14 to see how good these things can be. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what you're getting here is a business that's probably not as competitively advantaged as it should be, uh, is in, in to be in your portfolio. Um, and I think there are just simply better opportunities. I would rather buy BHP or Rio mm. than buy the mining services contractor because I think these are price takers, not price makers. Okay, so a hold or just avoid it? Um, I would say avoid. Yep, okay, better opportunities elsewhere, Mark. Um, this has been a very disappointing company. I mean, Monodelphus, we know well. We used to, as in, when I say wealth, it's been a wealth winner for Team Invest on the last boom. And we largely sold out of the mining services group because they are very, very cyclical. 
when we had the last boom, which ended in about uh, 208 or 9. I'd have to check my dates, but we had a, we had a, 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 bit, a bit later, a bit further on, probably 12, 13. Um, we actually sold out of Monodelphus and Mineral Resources, and that was a very good move. And then we were out of it for about three or four years. And in 2016, in December, I remember having a meeting with Chris Ellison from MIN in Perth, and they were basically saying that they were seeing green shoots, BHP and Rio were starting to issue new contracts. A lot of the dumb competitors had gone broke and the pricing was becoming rational. So people weren't quoting for jobs on, uh, like for Monodelphus Mining Service jobs uh, at uh, loss-making positions and trying to pick it up on variations or something. So we were very keen to buy back into Monodelphus, but luckily for us, the market also anticipated Monodelphus was going to do really well. And the P shot up to about, I can't remember, like something like 50 or something. And we, you know, it just was too rich because it was based on expectations. And what happened? So we dodged a bit of a bullet because I would have been delighted to buy back into Monodelphus, absolutely quality management, and they, they know what they're doing. But they did, as Owen suggested, shift heavily into maintenance, which is a much lower margin and less moti business than when they were doing construction services and uh, for the big build-outs for BHP and Rio and then now what's happening with lithium and so on. So they've largely missed a lot of that. And the business is quite different and it's a lot lower profit margin business. But if you actually look at the 10-year history, earnings have actually gone from uh, 10 years ago from $1.59 per share to, to, to today at 55 cents. So it's actually been a story of woes and their earnings have been pretty flat after 2.16 going forward, but their earnings have gone down, which is what it's showing you is that the business is not as profitable as it was. And uh, it's actually, uh, just looking at it here, the profit margin's gone here. To prove my point, mm. the profit margin's gone from 6.3% back in 2.14 to currently at 3.1. So profit margin's halved over the 10 years and a consistent line. So this is not like a COVID blip. This is a uh, significant underperformance. Now, the surprising thing about Monodelphus is that it's on a high PE. It's paying 3.5% yield, which is okay, uh, but its EPS growth rate's been negative. Uh, and we've got it negative at 3.6 per year over, over the last six years, and that comes out, and it's on a 25 PE. Explain that to me. How can you justify 25 PE for negative, for negative earnings growth? So we're showing it returning negative 1.6 per year on our default metrics if you mm. bought it now and minus 3.9 on a margin of safety. So I would have to say, if you do have it, I would sell it. Yep, okay, all right. Monodelphus. All right, our ninth stock is, uh, we're into fast food. Uh, it is Collins Food. We better make it fast. We're getting tight for time. Uh, look, it owns uh, franchises restaurants with KFC, Taco Bell, and Sizzlers. Uh, now, once again, I guess the issue given are the uh, cost of living pressures that most are feeling at the moment. It's a question as to whether more people are likely to avoid fast food and cook at home. There is a case for the other side of that too, of course. Um, so, Mark, what's your thoughts on Collins Food? Um, Collins Foods is, is okay. Um, if you look at it, it's about a billion market cap, so it's not small. Um, it's got... Uh, 4.5% return on capital, so it fails on our uh, minimum 10. So return on equity is 13.7, which is go which is fine. So it means they're carrying a reasonable amount of debt. And if you look at the debt, it's actually sh showing at 219%. Um, now the question is how much of that is um, uh, leases and so on. And I can try and strip it out very very fast if I quit really quick. Um, so it wouldn't be, it wouldn't it's probably not as bad as that, but it's. Uh, 
uh, debt, 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 sorry, is, so if you go pre-COVID, the debt rate was 83%, which is still above our filters. So it's never, it's never passed. So it's P at the moment is in the lower green on the bottom quartile at 20 times earnings. And its EPS growth rate's been 7.3 with pretty good stability and sales have been growing at 11. That's over the last six years. We find it much more useful to look at a period of six years, preferably a minimum of four years, rather than just what it did last year. Mm. Because then it gives you, it gives you a, a more likely uh, read for what the future looks like. So it jumped up um, coming out of COVID a bit and then dropped down a bit. I just don't see it as being very exciting at all. And we're showing it returning 15% a year on default and 2% on a margin of safety. So um, you'd want to be, I think if you wanted to buy it, it would need to be significantly cheaper. So I'll just say, for me, I wouldn't say it's a sell, but I, would, I'm not, I wouldn't be a buyer either. Yep, fair enough. Owen? Yeah, I kind of agree with a lot of what Mark said. Uh, in Australia, McDonald's has about 22% market share of fast food. Uh, KFC is behind that about 11%, and then you've got Hungry Jacks and Domino's after that, and they're distant third and fourth. Uh, the key thing to keep in mind is that Collins Foods doesn't own the brand. So that's owned by Yum Brands in the United States, which is much better at unit economics. Um, and so it's a franchise of, uh, of KFC. Uh, it does have some more powerful rights in the, in the Netherlands, in the, in the Dutch market. But uh, for the most part, it is a price taker. So a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Collins yeah. Foods actually has no control over the price it pays for its inputs, like chicken and uh, canola oil, these types of things. And on the, conversely, it cannot set the prices. So you have a business that is kind of torn between uh, the two things that it cannot control. And so if we go back to what both Mark and I were talking about earlier on, this is probably not the type of thing that a lot of people want. Um, that said, it's always the type of business I want to own because I do like going to KFC, I do like Taco Bell. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, I think it's at best a hold. Okay, all right. That's Collins Foods. Let's round it out with Beam Communications, uh, specialised in design, development, and manufacture of uh, satellite and cellular equipment uh, has uh, contracts, I think, with uh, telco companies such as Iridium, Telstra, uh, Inmarsat, Thraya. Uh, Owen, interesting yeah. space. What yeah. do you make of this one? It's always interesting when people start talking about satellites in this day and age. Um, at, the, at the moment, though, it's a very small company and people should be aware of that. Um, if we can trust high tech with this, I would take high tech as a more interesting idea <laughs> passing through the initial filter, simply because this business looks profitable on paper. But if you actually look at the capitalized development costs, that means I'm telling you to go to the cash flow statement. It's actually going backwards um, from a cash flow perspective. So um, I would say at this stage, just to keep it short and brief, it's probably an avoid until I've done further research. Balance sheet looks good. Income statement looks good. Cash flow statement, I need to take a second look at. Yep. Well, that's, that's uh, concise. Mark? Uh, I wouldn't waste my time if I were you, Owen. I've got better things to do. It's 15 million market cap. It's tiny. And when you get down that, that kind of low level, you've got all the listing uh, costs and you're running uh, a listing company become, start becoming material. This has got uh, nearly 10 years' history of losing money. Not losing a lot, but it's negative, needless to say, over the last six years in what has been a booming industry. And I just read Musk, Musk's book by Walter Isaac, Isaac, Isaacson. And, uh, and when you look what he's doing with satellites with Starlink, you go, good luck you know, competing with uh, these, these guys. And he's booming, and these guys are going nowhere. So why would you bother? <laughs> That tells me it is an avoid from you. All right, so let's just sum it up then. 
Uh, we began with uh, Altium. Uh, Owen pointing out one of the best performing uh, stocks on the ASX. Uh, sticky customer base there, inside ownership or plus, but he's got a hold on it. Uh, Mark uh, has been a holder in the past. Uh, he's also got a hold on Altium. Uh, Charter Hall Long Whale REIT. An avoid from Mark. Uh, it's all about valuations at this point. Owen uh, watching. Look, uh, consistent income he points out. It's got a speculative buy on it, but it's cautious. Monodelphus in mining services. Um, Owen pointing out highly capital intensive, well-run business, uh, but both pointing out it is focused now more on maintenance uh, with lower margins there. So it's an avoid from Owen and a sell, in fact, from Mark. Collins Foods, uh, no, Mark, not interested, doesn't pass their filters. And Owen also pointing out it is a price taker. He's got a hold on it. And finally, their Beam Communications. Uh, sounds exciting uh, in the space that it's operating, but it's an avoid from Owen. Uh, it is going backwards. Both point that out. Just it's a small company, 15 million market cap. Uh, and Mark pointing out it's been losing money for 10 years, so also an avoid from him. All right, that is the show for today. Thanks to our guests. Oh, thanks for joining us, Ransk. Thank you. And from Mark from Team Invest, thanks to you. Good one. We couldn't hear you, but we got the gist of what you were saying. All right. Any stocks you'd like us to cover, go to osbiz.co forward slash callpicks or tweet us at osbiztv. Stay with us. The Pulse is up next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.